Good morning. Happy New Year. I tell you, those, those hymns and uh, Becca up here and just everything, I'm, I'm pretty much finished worshiping right about now. That was just, uh, just awesome. Great way to start the new year. Uh, turn with me, if you will, to uh, Hosea, book of Hosea, chapter 1. Open your Bible to the middle and keep going a little bit. It's after Daniel, the first of the, the minor prophets, so-called not because their messages were not significant, but because they are the shorter in length. We're going to be reading uh, just the first eight verses from Hosea chapter 1 together. <clears throat> but before we read that, I wanted to remind you of a verse from 1 John chapter 3, 1 John 3, 1. I want to have this verse echoing through our minds throughout the sermon. First uh, John 3, 1, first part of that verse is, See how great a love, literally what kind of love, the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. And with that ringing in our ears, let's read. Hosea chapter 1, the first eight verses. The word of the Lord which came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, who were kings of Judah, and during the reign, during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, who was king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry, and have children of harlotry. For the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So she went, so he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel, forget a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Name her Lo-Rochamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I would ever forgive them. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. When she had weaned Lo-Rochamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Sorry, that was the first nine verses. First nine verses. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for your great love that we have sung of this morning and for your great faithfulness. Father, I just pray that you would uh, shower us with your grace, with your wisdom this morning as we look into these words and try to understand a little bit more about how great your love is for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, if you look with me on your outline there, start with uh, point number one. Hosea rocks Jeroboam. Hosea rocks Jeroboam. What I mean by that is that God spoke through the life of Hosea in such a way so as to rock the nation of Israel which was at that time under the kingship of Jeroboam II, 
out of her comfort zone. Let me explain what I mean by that. Hosea was sent by God as a prophet to the northern kingdom. At that time, Jeroboam II, also known as Jeroboam, the son of Joash, was king. And under Jeroboam II, God had granted Israel a time of stability. Jeroboam restored the border of Israel. We read that in 2 Kings. And there was an abundance of grain, new wine and oil, and silver and gold. You find that in Hosea chapter 2. As well as it talks of the building of new palaces later in Hosea chapter 8. In 2 Kings 14, verse 27, we read that God saved Israel by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So by the standards of this world, we would say it was the best of times. There was peace, there was prosperity and stability. Or we would say Israel was in a comfort zone. But God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance. God is going to hit them with a foreshock. You know, sometimes the main shock of an earthquake is preceded by a foreshock. In the case of a major earthquake, these uh, foreshocks themselves can be very intense. The foreshock that God sends by his prophet Hosea is devastating. It is in the most vivid of allegories that God is going to explain exactly why conquest and captivity will overtake Israel. God is going to turn things topsy-turvy on them to help them see things from a different perspective, to help them see things from his perspective. So what, what we're, we've now reached the second point in the outline there, um, where, to fill in the blank there, it's a heart-wrenching juxtaposition. A heart-wrenching juxtaposition. So this shocking message is coming from the Lord to Israel through Hosea to rock the, uh, the nation of Israel out of their comfort zone. And what was this shocking message from the Lord? It begins here in the second verse of Hosea 1 which says, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the Lord commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. God's command to Hosea is shocking just on its face. He says, take a wife of harlotry. Now this woman's name is Gomer. We find out in verse 3. Uh, in verse 3 it says that Gomer conceived and bore Hosea a son. And every indication is that at the start, Gomer was a faithful wife. But God's command for Hosea to marry uh, contains a prophecy that Hosea's new wife is destined to betray his trust and to go after other lovers, to live a life of harlotry. The shock of this command is devastating, isn't it? Isn't this God's word that we have open today before us? Does it, does it yours say Holy Bible on the front? What kind of command then is this? From, one, uh, from God to one of his chosen messengers. How could he say, Hosea, go intimately involve yourself with a woman who will become a prostitute? Can we even speak such words in God's sanctuary? Even from our modern perspective, almost 3,000 years later, despite the fact that our culture, our music, our literature, our entertainment, and our advertising is infested with all manner of indecency and immorality, are we not repulsed by allegations and revelations of marital infidelity, such as we've seen uh, lately in the, in the headlines, sexual immorality of politicians, religious leaders, athletes, coaches? Why are we so shocked? Somewhere, way down, deep inside all of us, I think there's an intuitive, innate, natural understanding that failure to live up to a promise is wrong. In addition, right next to that, somewhere down deep inside, 
There's a conviction that the bond of love shared between a husband and wife is the most sacred of all promises. You put these two deeply felt convictions together, and it's like pouring gasoline on a fire. When we hear that the marital bond of love has been broken by the infidelity of a spouse, we cannot help but experience an explosion of emotions. So here's where it starts to get uncomfortable, where we should all get shocked at our comfort zones. To talk in public about such human failures, failures so painful that we would rather not be reminded of them. If you have suffered betrayal by a wife or a husband, or been grieved by any, any faithless act of, of somebody else, then you know the agony of heart, the dark night of the soul, the anguish of the mind that, that such betrayal brings. If, you, if you've gone through such a valley, my heart breaks for you even now. I've felt that pain. You can't live long in a community of human beings without at least some level having your heart wrenched by betrayal. And so it's hard even to, to talk about it. But I'm convinced that the reason God has Hosea take Gomer for his wife is that he, he wants our hearts to be wrenched. He wants us to feel that pain, that sting of betrayal, in such a way that it helps us to understand his point of view. How does this work? The reasons for, uh, for God's command to Hosea is stated in verse 2. God says that the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. God is authoring this heart-wrenching juxtaposition. And probably most of you know, to juxtapose means to place two things side by side. Here, God wants his hearers, Hosea's hearers, to place Hosea's married life alongside, to juxtapose Hosea's married life with Israel's spiritual life so that God can teach Israel and teach us some very important truths. Hosea's life is to be an allegory, but not in the usual sense of the word. The conventional allegory is a fiction that tells a story with symbolic characters and objects so as to vividly communicate a truth. But here in Hosea, we have something different. Hosea's story is not a fiction. Hosea actually lives this story. Hosea actually marries Gomer, and he loves her, and he starts a family with her. And then Gomer betrays him. We read that Gomer bears two more children after their first son, and there's a different phraseology used to describe their birth. Whereas the first son is explicitly described as being born to Hosea, in the case of the second and the third, Hosea simply writes that Gomer conceived and gave birth. That's in verse 6 and 8 of chapter 1. And this leaves open the possibility that he was not their father. But the depth of Gomer's unfaithfulness is much more clearly seen in chapter 3, where Hosea tells of having to buy Gomer back from slavery possibly from a position of bondage as a temple prostitute. It seems that her, her, her adulteries had resulted in her falling into debt and becoming trapped in slavery. Her life had spun out of control. The allegorical connections here are clear. I have them listed there in your, in your notes. Gomer represents the nation of Israel. Her adultery represents Israel's unfaithfulness to God, or more specifically, her idolatry, and her, and her immorality. And Gomer's lovers represent the idols that they have worshipped. Gomer's children, in some sense, represent the consequen consequences of her idolatry. And Hosea, the loving husband, represents God. So why such an allegory? Why connect God's love with the love of a man for his wife? Why connect idolatry with adultery? Why dredge up such painful imagery?
I am convinced it is because God wants us to have his perspective. He wants, us, he wants to give us a view into his heart so that we can understand his great love for us. In fact, I'm convinced that God created us male and female and instituted marriage first and foremost for exactly this purpose, to help us to understand his love. If we can understand the unity of the husband and wife who have come together to form a new family, we can appreciate God's calling us his children. If we can appreciate the love of a husband for his wife, if we can appreciate the intimacy of that one flesh relationship, then we can begin to understand the intimacy of the love of God for us. If we can appreciate the heart-wrenching pain of infidelity within the context of that one flesh relationship, then we can begin to understand the gravity of our sin within the context of God's fidelity to his promises. And flowing from that, we can also begin to understand the wrath of God falling justly on those who violate the exclusivity of God's great love. Through Hosea's life, God showed Israel how he felt towards them and their behavior. And as we apply the allegory to Israel, we can also begin to apply the allegory to ourselves and understand how God feels toward us. So we're going to learn about a heavenly and righteous jealousy. A heavenly and righteous jealousy, that's point three. The remainder of chapter one speaks of Gomer's three children. And if the allegory of Hosea's life is heart-wrenching, the names of his children are even more so. We're going to examine each name in turn, and as we do, we'll find that each name tells us something about the nature of God's great love for Israel and the nature of his great love for us. The first child is Jezreel. The second, I'll try to, try to say it right, is Lo Rohamah. And the last is Lo Ami. I'm going to take them in reverse order because I want to build up to Jezreel, not just because it's the easiest one to say, but uh, build up to Jezreel because it speaks of the final judgment. So the, fir- the third child was Lo Ami. That, me- that name means not my people. And we read of his birth in uh, verse 8 and 9 where it says that Gomer conceived and gave birth to a son, and the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, which means not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. That title, my people, indicates the special unity, the unique fellowship that Israel was granted with God. The scriptures time and again describe Israel as God's chosen people, God's children. Part of that imagery is the idea that God made them part of his family. God chose Israel from among the nations of the earth to be his. He adopted them. He called them my son. He says in Exodus, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. And he calls them my people, my people who are called by my name. That's from Second Chronicles 7. And in doing so, he's pu- he puts his name on, on, these, on these people, and he is identifying himself with them. And this is just an amazing expression of, of unity between God and man. And I think that God gives us the one flesh relationship in marriage to help us to understand this. We go all the way back to Genesis 2, verse 24. It says, A man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The two become one. They form a new family unit. In our culture, we have the tradition of the wife taking the name of the husband. At least we used to. Uh, I, th- I think that's a beautiful thing. And not because the husband's name is superior or because the husband is superior in nature to his wife. But it's a beautiful picture of the love of God which has caused us to be called by his name 
The oneness of marriage was given to us, I think, as an everyday living allegory to help us understand the unity that God granted Israel in ages past and that God grants us today through Christ. But the shocking thing is here in Hosea, God is saying exactly the opposite. God says, you are not my people and I am not your God. So this is a cataclysmic statement coming from the Lord, the God of Israel. What is happening here? What happened is that God's people, who are called by his name, turned to worship other gods. They walked out on the family. God didn't move. God didn't stop loving. God was never unfaithful. We sang this morning, great is thy faithfulness. But the people, the people rejected their role as God's children, and they joined themselves to another family. The principle in operation here is explained by Paul in 1 Corinthians 6. In verse 16 and 17, he says, Do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For the two shall become one flesh, he quotes back to Genesis. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. You see, these two onenesses cannot coexist. Either you are one with God or you are one with idols. John makes it quite clear in First uh, John chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. He writes, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in the darkness, what is it? We lie, and we do not practice the truth. So we see here that Israel chose to be one with, harlots, uh, one with the harlots Baal and Ashtaroth. She chooses to walk in darkness. And when God says, Lo Ami, you are not my people, It's a simple, straightforward, although shocking, and very painful statement of the truth. This is the way it is. This is the consequence, my children. You are not my people. The second child uh, was a girl, and her name was Lo Ruchamah, which means not pitied, or she has not obtained compassion. We read in Hosea chapter 1, verse 6, that she, that is Gomer, conceived again, and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Name her Lo Ruchamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I would ever forgive them. I don't know about you, but that's another shocking statement. As if, God's, as if losing God's name was not a disaster enough. How about this? God says, There's no road back. I will no longer have compassion. I will never forgive. Does this sound like the God you know? I want you to think twice before you answer that question. Because now we're starting to get down to the heart of the issue. Does God forgive spiritual adultery? Does God forgive idolatry? You know he does. You can remember back to Aaron and the story of the golden calf. Right? He makes this golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai. The people said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And when Aaron sees this, he builds an altar and And he says, tomorrow we'll have a feast to the Lord. And so he's mixing worship of the Lord with worship of this golden calf. And they worship the calf and they sacrifice to it. And as you read the story, it's made clear that at that point, God could have rightfully wiped out the entire nation right there. At the very, very least, he could have stripped all the the rights and privileges that Aaron uh, had to his, his 
in fulfilling his high priestly role. He could have taken, taken that family right out of that, that role as priest. But what happened? God offered a chance for repentance. We read in Exodus 32 that Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the sons of Levi, that included Aaron and his family, gathered to Moses. So the sons of Levi turned from their idolatry, and God granted them forgiveness. At the same time, we must not gloss over the fact that there were severe consequences that day. 3,000 people lost their lives. They were executed for their idolatry. These did not receive the forgiveness that Aaron and his family and the rest of Israel received. The difference between those who received mercy and those who did not was repentance. Those who received mercy were the ones that turned from their idolatry and declared themselves to be for the Lord. But even in this, we need to be careful to realize that the reason that God offered any opportunity to repent was purely out of his compassion. And as we'll see in a few moments when we discuss the name of Hosea's first child, God extended such compassion to Israel, you know the story, over and over and over again. The fact that Israel repeatedly was in need of God's compassion, I think, is a testament in and of itself to the fact that they did not deserve it. But God's willingness to extend compassion in spite of that fact um, is is part of God's character in spite of the fact that Israel did not uh, deserve his compassion. He continued to extend it. Again, I see God revealing to us the nature of his love. In any act of forgiveness, there's a restoration of a degree of intimacy. I think we all know this from experience. If, If we refuse to forgive someone, there's by definition a barrier between them and us, right? The walls are up, the defenses are in place, we say to each other, thus far and no further. But as soon as we forgive, that intimacy can begin to be restored. Now imagine a situation where you forgave someone for some offense and that intimacy was, was beginning to be restored. The next thing you know, they go out and they commit that same offense again. What happens to the intimacy? Don't the walls go right back up? Don't the protection, mechanism, protection mechanisms come right back into place? And I think rightly so, because that person has presumed upon your love and your mercy, and you're letting them back into your life again. That intimacy that your forgiveness had restored is fundamentally incompatible with continued, repeated commission of that original offense. You see, God loved Israel with an intimate love. When he forgave them, he was drawing them back into his heart. He speaks this way of Israel in chapter 2 of Hosea. Chapter 2, verses 14 and 16. God says, therefore, behold, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi, which means my husband, and you will no longer call me Bali, which means my master, and it's a play on words with the the, uh, idol Baal. So we see here that restoration of intimacy comes with forgiveness. And this is God's heart for his people, to have that intimate love relationship. But we can see at the same time that when forgiveness is presumed upon, when that intimacy is taken for granted, God's ultimate withdrawal of his compassion is justified. So, back in 1 John, this is why John writes, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us 
that we be called the children of God. But then you go down a few verses, 1 John 3, 6, and it says, No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. And then in verse 8, the one who practices sin is of the devil. You see, this is the kind of love the Father has for us. In its compassionate forgiving, it is an intimate love, and therefore it's completely incompatible with the repeated practice of sin that John's referring to. And thus God says to the children of Israel in Hosea, Lo rachamah, you have not obtained compassion. So we've reached uh, back now to the first child who was told to be named Jezreel. In Hosea 1, verses 3 through 4, we read that Gomer conceived and bore a son, and the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel, for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Now these two verses are so jam-packed with meaning that there's no way we can unpack it all this morning. But I want to hit the significant points. So Jezreel has a double meaning. It means scattered. But it's the same word that was used to describe the scattering motion in those days that a farmer used to plant seed. So it also means planted. So there's kind of a double meaning here, scattered and planted. When you hear Jezreel, you definitely need to think judgment. Jezreel judgment. Because the reference to Jezreel here is a prophecy about the scattering of Israel. And that's exactly what happens when Assyria comes in, dismembers the northern kingdom, it sweeps in and invades them, and it sends their population into exile. The people of Israel are scattered. At the same time, when you think of Jezreel, you need to remember the unchangeableness and the fidelity of God. God never budged from his covenant that he made with Israel. And we see a future stability a being planted, Jezreel, that is promised to Israel. And that's where the meaning of planted comes into play later on in Hosea. But here in verse 5, Jezreel is used in a, in a very specific sense to refer to an historical event. And this reference is, is to serve as a wake-up call to Israel. Hosea, speaking the word of the Lord, says that God will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, or literally I will visit the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu. Okay, so we need a little background to understand who Jehu is and what the bloodshed of Jezreel refers to. Now, Jehu rose to power as as king of the northern kingdom roughly 90 years before Hosea's prophecy. So Hosea is harking back to something 90 years ago. Jehu was God's chosen instrument for carrying out judgment on the house of Ahab. Ahab is probably a more familiar name to most of us. He was king some 120 years before Hosea's ministry. And as you may know, Ahab and his wife Jezebel had a long track record. It's summed up in 1 Kings 16, verses 30 through 33, where we read that Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. He married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went to serve Baal and worshipped him. We've heard that name before. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab also made the Asherah. We've heard that name before. Thus Ahab 
did more to provoke the Lord God Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And this was the prophecy that was spoken over Jehu that is, when he was anointed as king of Israel. That references Ahab in 2 Kings 9, verses 6 through 9. We read, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, speaking to Jehu, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord, even over Israel, and you shall strike the house of Ahab your master, for the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off Ahab from every male person, cut off from Ahab every male person, both bond and free in Israel. I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Okay, I'm bringing in another name here, but hold on. So J, uh, uh, Ahab, evil king. And a, a few generations later, Jehu is appointed king by the Lord and given this, this prophecy that he will cut off all the sons of Ahab from the land. And Jehu fulfills this prophecy. And this is how it, it went down. First, he assassinates Ahab's grandson, who was then king of Israel. And the execution happens in Jezreel. For good measure, at the same time, about the same time, Jehu shoots the king of Ahaziah, sorry, the king of then Judah, King Ahaziah. Where did that happen? It happened in the valley of Jezreel. You're going to see a pattern here with the valley of Jezreel. Next, he has Jezebel, who's still alive, thrown down from her window and trampled under horses. That happens in Jezreel. And that's not the end of it either. In 2 Kings 10, there's a very gruesome tale of how Jehu arranges to have all of Ahab's male descendants, and there were 70 of them, decapitated, and their heads are brought to him. He piles them up in two heaps at the city gate. Thus, the family of the line of Ahab was cut off, just as, as the prophecy had said, and Jehu rose to the throne. And the name of the city that was home to all of this blood and gore? You guessed it, it was Jezreel. This is the Jezreel that Hosea is referring to. This is the bloodshed that God is vowing to visit on the house of Jehu. Now, Jehu's great-grandson is the Jeroboam, who's now sitting on the throne of Israel that Hosea is speaking to. And we see that this judgment is extended to all Israel in Hosea. At this point, I think it's fair to ask why. Why all this bloodshed and why the reference to Jezreel? And it goes deeper into the history of of Israel. The answer is that the bloodshed of Jezreel was ultimately a judgment on idolatry. In the passages that we read summarizing Ahab's evil deeds, God promised to make Ahab's house, quote, like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Now there's two Jeroboams here. This is the earlier Jeroboam, the first king of Israel, when when the kingdoms became divided about 200 years earlier. If you trace God's uh, pronunciations of judgment back through the books of kings, Israel's history looks like a chain that's forged with repeating links. There's idolatry followed by judgment. And the references to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that is Jeroboam the first, they're inscribed on every link of judgment in this terrible chain. Whether you go forward or backward in history from Ahab, you'll find repeated over and over Statements such as this, 
So-and-so, the king, did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he acted more wickedly than all who were before him. For he walked in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in his sins which he made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel with their idols. There are at least 20 such references in the books of First and Second Kings. That's roughly one every other chapter. Now, if Scripture says something once, we should pay attention, right? If it says it twice, it's probably pretty important. If it says it 20 times, I'm guessing we should really take note. You see, Jezreel should bring to mind God's judgment upon Israel for her idolatry. And Hosea is harking back to the time of, of Jeroboam, uh, this, uh, at the time of Jeroboam II, harking back to the time of Je- Jehu and the bloodshed of Jezreel, should have jolted the people's minds back to Scripture, back to the time of Jeroboam I. And if we go back and look there in, in 1 Kings, this is what we find. The king, that is Jeroboam I, what did he do? He made two golden calves, and he said to them, Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you from the land of Egypt. We've heard that one before, right? And he set one of these calves in, in Bethel, and the other one he put in Dan. And so God's message to Jeroboam the first was this. I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel. Yet you have gone and made for yourselves other gods and molten images to provoke me to anger. And you have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I am bringing calamity on the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male person. And I will make a clean sweep of the house of Jeroboam as one sweeps away dung until it is gone. So Hosea's prophecy here in Hosea is just the last installment of a message that God has been delivering to the nation of Israel for 200 years. It's just amazing to go back and trace that through First and Second Kings. But as we go back through that sordid history, something else besides Israel's failures should be jumping off the pages at us. Through all of the disobedience, God remained faithful to Israel. He continued to call them his people. He continued to use the phrase, Lord God of Israel, to refer to himself. He continued to have compassion on the people, to forgive the nation over and over again, to give them a second, a third, a fourth, and a tenth chance. I counted 20 kings of Israel, none of whom took down the golden calves that Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, built. Nevertheless, God remained faithful. God remained true to his covenant which he made with them. See, he was the unchanging rock. Ultimately, he was the one that remained planted. So, it's time for us to pull this all together. God is a God of compassion, a God who adopted Israel as his son, who loves Israel as a faithful husband loves his wife. There is unity, there is intimacy, there is in, there's fidelity. But at the same time, There's the harshest of judgments. How do we make these pieces fit together? I think Scripture sums it up in one word. Jealousy. Jealousy. What comes to mind when you hear that word? A two-year-old throwing a tantrum because he's not getting all the attention? Maybe co-workers griping over coffee break about the promotion that somebody else got? That's not what Scripture speaks of in reference to God and his jealousy. I think a helpful definition of jealousy with reference to God, is intolerance of rivalry. In other words, you become jealous when you develop a negative state of mind as a result of of believing that someone is usurping the position that belongs to you. 
Now, this can be a sin. In the case of that cranky two-year-old's tantrum, it's probably motivated by the self-centered belief that no one else has a right to his mother's attention, ever. Or that derogatory coffee break chatter is usually motivated by a prideful belief that we deserve equal or better than the other guy. But there is a justified jealousy, a legitimate jealousy. Jerry Bridges writes in his book, um, Respectable Sins, that there are legitimate occasions for jealousy, such as when someone is trying to win your spouse away from you. God even declares himself to be a jealous God who will not tolerate the worship of anyone or anything other than himself. And God was very clear to his people long before the time of Jeroboam I. He told the children of Israel through Moses 500 years before that, you shall not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. God actually identifies jealousy as, as one of his attributes. He says, my name is Jealous in my Bible with a capital J. The truth is straightforward. God will not tolerate a rival. And those who choo- uh, choose a rival over God will suffer the consequences. To put it back in Hosea's language, the harlot will suffer <clears throat> the bloodshed of Jezreel, the scattering hand of God's judgment. The harlot will be lo ruchamah, not pitied and not forgiven. The harlot will be lo ami, not my people. As I meditated on Hosea's message, what came screaming out to me loud and clear is that God was completely, 100% justified in his jealousy. The people had presumed upon God. They thought they could go about their lives and, and live however they wanted to and still enjoy the privileges. They wanted to enjoy the privileges of still being called God's people, of still re- receiving forgiveness, of still avoiding the judgment that they deserved. And they wanted the perks, but without the relationship. They wanted that name, God's people, but not true adoption by God. They wanted the freedom of forgiveness, but not the intimacy of relationship with God. They wanted pardon from being scattered, but without really being planted in God's vineyard. The trouble was they didn't understand what manner of love the Father had bestowed on them. If they had only gone back to Exodus 34 and the story of Aaron and the golden calf, you can see there in in, uh, verse 9 of Exodus 34, Moses pleading with God. What does he say? He says, pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your own possession. He's literally saying, have compassion, have pity, have ruchamah, Lord, and make us your people. Say to us, ami, say to us that we are your people. And what does God say? Exodus 34.10. Behold, I am going to make a covenant before all your people I will perform miracles which, I have not produced, which, which have not been produced in all the earth nor among any other nation. God made a covenant, a promise. God made Israel his people. God forgave them their sin. God planted his people in their land. God formed this intimate relationship with Israel that Hosea pictures for us as a marriage. And the two became one. I can only go back to John, 1 John Chapter 3, verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. Thus God has a right to be jealous. 
And he's right to condemn Israel for hundreds of years of faithlessness. And eventually God says, she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. There in Hosea uh, chapter 2, verse 2. So, how do we respond? We can go back to Ephesians 5 that we read earlier this morning, which tells us how much Christ loves the church, so much so that he gave himself up for her. He humbled himself. He was made in the likeness of man. He became obedient even to death, the death of the cross. And now that we've seen, seen what Jesus has done, in addition to all that God has done through history with, with Israel, now that we've seen what it, what it, and understood what it takes, the price that has to be paid for us to be forgiven for our sin, I think we should have even all the more appreciation of God's great love for us. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. Our response. First, we need to recognize that we are made from the same human stuff as Israel. The plain truth is that we are all by nature harlots. We have all sought after other gods. Maybe not images of silver and gold, but we've all, as the song says, looked for love in all the wrong places. We're all guilty of searching for significance, for comfort and meaning in life, in people and in things, rather than in the Lord our God. And as we recognize our guilt in this, we need to marvel all the more at the love of God. As Paul says, God demonstrates his own love toward us in Romans 5.8, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, while we were still in a state of harlotry, going after other gods, God sent Jesus to die on the cross, to shed his blood, to make a way for us to be restored to that intimate relationship with him. First, first comes repentance. Having realized our situation, that we deserve judgment for our harlotry, and having understood God's great love, that Jesus died in our place to satisfy that judgment, we are faced with a choice. We can either continue on in our harlotry, as did the nation of Israel, presuming upon the mercy of God, taking for granted that he does not strike us down immediately, or we can listen to God's call to repentance. We can respond even as, as the Assyrians did back in the day of Jonah, when they heard Jonah's message and call to repentance. In Jonah 3, verse 5 through 9, we read that the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth. They grieved for their sins. And the king issued a proclamation that said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. And as you know the story, God did relent, and they did not perish. But the amazing thing is that, that if we do that, if we repent and return to him, he promises that we will be saved, we will be forgiven. Romans 10, 9, uh, 10, 9 through 11 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. So with repentance comes forgiveness and salvation. But it doesn't stop there. 
After repentance comes devotion. Once we've confessed Jesus with our mouth and believed in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, it doesn't end there. As God's people, we should be mindful of his jealousy. In light of his great love, in light of his heavenly and righteous jealousy, we are to live a life of devotion to him. And he's certainly more than worthy of it. He is the one who has loved us so much that he has borne the bloodshed of Jezreel away, that he has had compassion on us and forgiven us our sins, and that he has called us to be his people. There's a lot that can be said here, but I want to draw our attention to a familiar passage in the book of Revelation. Revelation 2, 4. We read that Jesus has a message for the church at Ephesus. We read, But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. I think we need to hear this. Our lives are so full of stuff. Family, careers, college, church, church committees, mortgage payments, home repairs, politics, food, entertainment, you name it. We can get on that treadmill and it never seems to stop. But here's the question. Do you remember your first love and are you wholly devoted to him? In the traditional wedding ceremony, there's, there's a part of the vow where the bride and the groom promise to love, to honor, and cherish each other, forsaking all others and keeping only to one another as long as they both shall live. Have you forsaken all others but God? We need to constantly examine our thoughts, our affections, our actions, our decisions, our convictions. Are they rooted in a wholehearted love for Jesus? Are we fully devoted to him? Or are we letting the things of this world become idols? Finally, this morning, as we've, we've contemplated what manner of love the Father has given to Israel and to us, as we see how he has had pity on us and forgiven us, how he has called us his own and made us part of his family, we have to ask the question, how then are we to relate to one another? We're often told in the Bible to love one another, to forgive one another. But I just can't help but noticing that if God, who was so patient with Israel and who has been so patient with us, was willing to condescend, to have compassion on us, to forgive us, to adopt us into his family, and to bear away the burden of our judgment for us, how can we then turn around and not forgive one another? When we think of our offenses against God, how they are an offense to him just as, as the harlotry of Gomer was toward Hosea, and we think of his righteous wrath, which came down upon the heads of so many who refused to turn from their idolatry, that wrath which we ourselves, apart from his grace, also deserve. And then we think of how he who knew no sin became sin for us to save us from that wrath. How can we then refuse to love one another? How can we refuse to forgive one another? How can we refuse to bear one another's burdens? As we go from here today into this new year, let our hearts be filled with thanksgiving that God has removed the bloodshed of Jezreel from us. Let us rejoice that he has had compassion on us. He has had ruhamah and forgiven us. Let us rejoice that he does not hold our infidelity against us. And let us remember that we are his people. We are ami. 1 John 3.1 says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. 
So let us live our lives as those for whom God is jealous. Let us forsake all others and keep only to him as long as we shall live. Let us love and honor and cherish him. And let us love one another, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven us. Amen.